In the way around, let me again welcome you to Four Oaks Church. I'm Paul Gilbert. I'm the lead pastor. If I have not had a chance to, to meet you, why don't you grab me after the service? Let me know where we're going to lunch this week, and it'd um, be great to, to get to know you a little bit. No, seriously, love to, to love to meet you, connect with you. You know, we're, we're, we're still here early enough in 2017, you know, where the idea of goals and resolutions and objectives is sort of fresh on our hearts and minds with our, with our New Year resolutions. You know, as pastors, we, we engage in the same sort of thing as it relates to the church family, towards us, towards, towards you. When we ask, what do we want to see God do in the life of the Four Oaks family this, this season, this year? Now, if, I, if we were to take a poll, there's probably a lot of areas in your life where you feel um, deficits. You know, you feel neediness. You feel like you need help or instruction, you know. What does it mean to be, Pastor Paul, a faithful Christian in a, in, a, in a growingly secular, hostile culture? Or, Pastor Paul, how do I parent my kids in a hyper-sexualized sort of culture? Um, Pastor Paul, how do, how do I order my life in terms of busyness and the insanity of my schedule? Or how do I navigate technology or Help us like with our finances and those sorts of things. And, and let me just say, all of those things have their place. They're all important. We want to be talking about them right here. But whether we are aware of it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, all of those things I mentioned and countless others are really just symptomatic of a far greater deficit that you and I have. And that is the deficit of knowing God. You know, here at the dawn of 2017, I'm, I have the conviction that what you and I need the most, what you need, what your family needs, what our church needs, what your community group needs, at the end of the day, is a truer, deeper knowledge of God. And so we're going to be running hard these next few weeks after prayer. Now, now, while prayer is not the only way of, of knowing God, I, I would maintain it as a primary one. In fact, I would go as far to say is that, that prayer is a barometer of spirituality in each of our lives. It's, it's an indicator, so to speak, of how well or how deeply or how much you and I are communing and relating with God as our Father. Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish minister hundreds of years ago, had this to say, and I think it's very true for us. He says, what a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is and no more. In other words, take away the pretense. Take away our public image. Take away our posturing. Take away what's obvious for everyone to see. And what is left at the end of the day? And whatever is left, that's what constitutes our relationship with God. And, and, if, and if we have no heart engagement with him, if we have no communion with him, can we really say that we know him? Are we, can we really say that we're, we're growing in depth with him? And, and it's interesting enough, you know who really understood this, I think? It was the disciples. Think about the front row seat they had on the ministry of Jesus and think about all the amazing things they witnessed. 
They, they, they saw Jesus heal. They saw him perform miracle after miracle. They saw him raise a man from the dead. They heard him preach. They witnessed his teachings. They were there three years. And if we think about all the things that the disciples could have thought to ask Jesus as they prepared for, to carry on the gospel ministry after he went into heaven, what, what is the thing that they asked him about? It's interesting, they never asked him about worship. They never asked him how to preach. They never asked him how to heal. The one thing they asked him, though, was what? Lord, teach us to pray. You see, they could see that whatever else was going on in the life and ministry of Jesus, there was something deep and meaningful and profound happening between Jesus and his Father. They understood that his life and ministry, that everything that flowed from it, flowed from that communion that Jesus had with God. It's what made everything else go. It's what shaped, it's what directed everything in his life and ministry. And so they come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us about this thing called prayer. And his response is found in Matthew chapter 6, and you can turn there now. We're going to be the next few weeks here in the Lord's Prayer. Now, many of you grew up reciting this prayer in church. I did as well. I attended First Presbyterian, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And and the Lord's Prayer, like early on, kind of spawned a theological crisis of conscience for me because in, in, in our church, we said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? And so I don't know... So when my friend brought me to his Baptist church and they said, forgive us our trespasses, oh my gosh, I thought I was in a cult, okay? And, and I might have been, actually, but, but not for that reason. Now, there's two places in the Gospels that Jesus teaches about what we have come to term the Lord's Prayer, Luke and in Matthew, and they're slightly different. This version that we're looking at here in Matthew is 57 words, and it's different probably because for two reasons. One, Jesus taught it in multiple venues. Jesus, um, initially the disciples asked him about what does it mean to pray, teach us to pray. And then Jesus probably used this teaching in a variety of other contexts and venues with different audiences. But the second reason it's probably not identical is that Jesus didn't mean this to be merely a rote prayer that we pray in church. Now we are in a minute, I'll give you fair warning We're going to stand and recite this prayer, so just prepare yourself, okay, for this. But that's not fundamentally why Jesus gave it. See, Jesus has given us a template. Jesus has given us a model. And there are 57 words in here, which I dare say, amazingly, Jesus manages to gather up all of what it means to live life under God. All of what it means to live life in communion and relationship with him. And he says, let this be the trajectory of your life. And so, folks, our prayer, that the Lord's prayer will set the trajectory for our spiritual lives in the coming season. I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read this together. That means in unison, 57 words. Jesus starts by saying, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me read the last part of that while you're standing there. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we're standing in need this morning of you. That's that's what we fundamentally need. Whether we are aware of it or not, we pray that this would be a season in the life of of our souls, our hearts, our church family, where we come to taste and see that you are good. So Lord, do this work of grace for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, as we jump into this text, I just want to point out two overly obvious things. They're so obvious that we're going to be tempted just to kind of blow right past them. And here's the the first one about the Lord's Prayer that we need to know. Number one, Jesus prayed all the time. I did a word search through the Gospels, and I cannot tell you how many times it says things like, Jesus got up early in the morning and it was still dark, as was his custom. Jesus was up all night wrestling in prayer. Jesus, they had to send out search parties at different times to find Jesus because he had disappeared. And when they found him, what was he doing? He was praying. Now, the reason this is astounding to us is that certainly Jesus is a man, 100% flesh and blood human being. But let's not forget that Jesus was also 100% God. And if the God-man needed prayer, folks, how much more do you and I, mere men, mere women, need prayer? It's such an obvious reality that, that we can become blind to it. Here's the second thing I want you to know. Prayer is intensely personal. Prayer is never less than personal, but prayer is much more than personal. So when you read the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting. You do not see the word you, I, me, mine at all. It is all in the plural. It is us. It is we. It is our. It's you, plural. Because Jesus is teaching us that that prayer, while it's not less than personal, it's so much more. Prayer blooms in the community of God. And so so this is one of the reasons we've we've given you this this resource, this prayer book. And you you should find one on your seat somewhere. Um, You can grab one. Um, If your spouse got one and you didn't, just grab it from your spouse and y'all can figure that out later. Or you can grab one the way out today. If you still need a prayer book, but one of our ushers will bring one to you, you just raise your hand and they'll they'll float one around to you. So, or if you're too embarrassed to do that, just grab one. Or just get up in the middle of the sermon. It's okay, all right? Go go, go grab yourself one. Let me orient you to what's, to how we want to run after prayer as a church family. So, so one, there's a place at the, at the back of the book where you can write down sermon notes. I don't know if you knew this. It's allowed for you to take notes during the sermon. Okay, just, just FYI, if, you, if, you were not, if you're not clear about that. There's also on page 18 
um, a, and a little um, section that you can use in your personal quiet times that Pastor Lance put together if you want to do your personal quiet times around the Lord's Prayer. There's also, if you look on page 16, questions that you can use in your community group. So, 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 in our, so as jo- Pastor Josh mentioned, church is not less than gathering as God's people on the Lord's Day, but again, it's so much more. So we gather in homes for fellowship, for community, to pray, to apply the, 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 the text of what we've been studying together in our, in our own uh, personal, quaint, intimate relationships. So there's, there's questions for community groups. And then you'll also notice, though, but the, the first section of this whole booklet, pages 1 through 15, provides an opportunity, a template, for many times that we are going to have the opportunity to pray together as a church family. We're calling these morning and evening. And on the cover of your book, it has a schedule. So the week of January 23rd through the 26th, we're going to take an hour at 7 a.m. and an hour at 7 p.m. and pray. Those are going to be led by pastors and elders and, and ministry leaders. And then starting on Friday, January 27th at 7 a.m., we're going to have a 24-hour prayer vigil. And, and here's what I would like to ask you to prayerfully consider. Folks, would you prayerfully consider attending one hour at any point in time that you want? Now, you, you're not signing up. You're not trumpeting your, your, your arrival. We're just going together right here. Um, and we are going to pray together as a church family. Moms and dads swap in and out with the kids, come before work, come after work. You can come in the middle of the night. We have a night watch crew that's going to be praying in the middle of the night. Just come at any point in time, week following, for an hour. And, and I think what's, what we're going to find is that some of you are terrified about praying publicly, or about praying in groups, and, and don't worry, we're not going to make you. Like, I'm not even sure how you would make someone, but we're not going to make you. But I'll tell you this, and Spurgeon notes this, that when you are growing in your prayer life personally, it will fuel and feed your prayer life publicly. Those two things go hand in hand. So may God use this month to, to, to draw us deeper into him and to each other. Now let's get to the text. There's three ways. We're going we're to spend three weeks preaching through this, through this prayer. And, and today we're going to talk about three ways that God wants us to orient to him, that God wants us to orient to Jesus in prayer. So we're going to talk about how God is with us, number one. Number two, how God is above us. And then number three, how God is over us. Got it? With us, above us, over us. Let's look at with us. The first two words of this prayer, I think, is the foundational phrase and foundational reality of the, of the whole of the Christian life, of the whole of communion with God, our Father. Now, you have to know when Jesus, when they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray, and he begins by saying, our Father, it most certainly would have been a, a bizarre sort of experience for them. So I want you, to, want you to note this, that people have studied, people who, who've done a comprehensive systematic study of this, and studied all of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, ancient Jewish writings post- Okay, post-first century, 
And not one time, not once, does, do Jews ever reference God as Father. Not one time. Now, that doesn't mean that the idea of God's fatherhood is not present in the Old Testament, because it is, it's everywhere. God calls Israel his son. He calls, he calls Israel his people. He talks about his covenantal love for them. And so this idea of God as father is everywhere. However, Jews did not feel, I don't know how you would call it, the compulsion, the freedom to address God personally because God was high and holy. And he is so high, he is so holy, we don't even utter his name. Remember, Moses said, God, tell me, Tell, tell, tell me who to say sent me to these Egyptians. And he said, Yahweh, which is just another saying, tell them I am, I am sent you. I am who I am. And anytime you read in the Old Testament and you find the word Lord capitalized in all letters, that's a place where the word Yahweh is, is, is signified. And Jews, God was so high. He was so holy. He was viewed as so inaccessible, they wouldn't even utter his name. But when we get to the New Testament, and here's what's fascinating. Do you know that except once, every prayer of Jesus in the Gospels addresses God as Father? Every single one except one. We find that this term, Father is translated Abba in Mark and in a couple of places in Paul's writings. And it was really just fundamentally a term of endearment. A, 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 a fami- it, was, it was used to signify a familial relationship. It was something intensely personal and intimate. We go from, we don't dare utter his name, he's so inaccessible. Jesus says, let me, let, let me tell you the fundamental reality if you want to know God. Our Father. Now, we, I look, I'm looking around, and I see a lot of kids and parents here, and we know that you guys have secret nicknames for each other, right? Am I, am I right? Okay. That you would not dare utter publicly, except till your parents trot them out at your rehearsal dinner, and then they become very, very public. So, so Susan and I have been watching The Crown, The Royal Family, The Story of Elizabeth II, and it's amazing that, that people of the royal family publicly had the most prestigious of titles. Okay? So, Her Majesty, okay? the Queen Mother, the Prince of Edinburgh. I asked my kids to call me that, but they were not down with it. Okay? The Duke of Windsor. Okay? Yet, behind closed doors, the king is actually a dude named Bertie, okay? interestingly enough. The, the mother is Mama. Yes, Mama. See, these, these, these nicknames, these titles reflected their heart and affection towards each other. And that familial closeness is what Jesus is getting at here. Our Father. Listen to the way Paul, Paul puts this. Galatians 4, 6-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, there it is, Abba, Father. I know many of you have have adopted here. And all the emotions and, and, and thrills and ups and downs that are represented by bringing someone into your family. I was talking to a couple yesterday from Midtown. And I had the great pleasure of saying, this couple's going through an adoption. And, they, and they're being paired here locally for an adoption. And I had the great privilege of telling them, hey, guys, there's somebody in the church family that just wants to bless people in your situation. And to experience their response, where they are speechless, where they are on the floor, where they are crying, where they are praising and calling out to God because there is this familial reality about to transpire in their life. Jesus says, it's true for you. If you know me, well, just let me ask you just a, a practical question as we unpack this some more. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? And, and let me just say this if, if you're someone who's uncomfortable, like, like I am historically growing up in, a, in quite a different church background with this idea of a relational God that actually involves emotions and affections, and crying out to him, if that just all seems creepy to you, okay, or, or uncomfortable, let me just offer this encouragement to you and to myself. I think that there is still more for us to tap into this season in knowing God. See, God is Jesus's father, And Jesus says, if God is to be anything to you, Christian, he must first be your father. Or guess what? He's not your God. Now, which raises an interesting question, a controversial question, a a, a question that's treacherous in our current cultural waters, relates to this. How do you know? How this morning, how do you know if God is your father. See, culturally, spirituality is fine. In fact, praying is fine. Praying is actually cool. Go on Facebook, Twitter. Everybody's praying for something, right? Prayers offered. Prayers sent up, okay? Prayers prayers sent your way like a paper airplane floating across the room, right? You, you You hear all that? But to whom? Prayers to whom? And more importantly, Are they being heard? See, culturally, spirituality is a giant mountain. And and there are many pathways up up that mountain to God or a higher being or whoever it is that you worship. And it really doesn't matter which path you're taking as long as you're sincere about it. If, If you sincerely believe it's a valid path for you, then it's a great path for you. And let me just say unequivocally, That is not what Jesus is talking about here. That is not biblical Christianity. Because when we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus is utterly unique. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the only begotten of God. Philip says, Jesus, how do we know the Father? You know what Jesus tells him? He says, Philip, if you have known me, you have known the Father. 
I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father but what? Through me. See, the next time you pray in Jesus' name at the dinner table, just remember, you're not praying something perfunctory. You're praying something that is at the heart of the most profound truth of the universe. That because of Jesus Christ, you and I can know God as whom? Father. You may say, Pastor Paul, that that sounds exclusive. That sounds elitist. That sounds arrogant. And then we just say, it's anything but. Because I want you to know the fatherhood of God is offered to each and every one of us this morning. Not just an exclusive few. The fatherhood of God is offered to every single person on planet Earth. It does not matter how old you are, what your socioeconomic status is, your ethnicity, your background. You know, we celebrate Martin Luther King weekend this season, and most of you are aware of that because you don't go to work or school tomorrow. It's where we obviously celebrate the civil rights movements and the freedoms that came through that. Susan and I went to see a movie on Friday night called Hidden Figures, and it's a story of three African-American ladies who um, worked for NASA, and it's about their story, but it's all, it's all done against the backdrop of what's going on in the culture in terms of civil rights and such. And parents, let me just say this. Tonight, go take your kids to see that movie. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's awesome. It's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible thing. But you know what? As you're watching it, remember that the civil rights movement was not primarily about civil rights. It was primarily a theological movement. The fact that men and women treat everyone the same or call to is only possible because of the gospel. And here is how Christianity distinguishes itself. You see, in every other major religion of the world, God or higher power or higher being is at the top of the mountain. And you better do everything you can, you can to claw, to climb, to attain, to achieve, to get up there. And you could never be fully sure if you're there until the end of your life. And even then you may not be sure. Christianity is distinguished by the humility of God the Father. Because the God the Father says, you don't have to come up here. You can't climb up here because you can't. But I'm coming down. I'm sending my son to die for you. And through him, in his name, I now have unhindered communion and relationship with you. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, our Father, God with us. May it be more and more true for you experientially this season. Number two, Jesus also, he, I mean, he's going to stretch our categories here, so get ready. As humans, it's hard to think in multi-planes all at once, but this is true. Jesus says, though, not only is God with us, He's also God above us. Look at the text. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, this idea of of in heaven wasn't so much to denote this idea of a distant spatial reality like high in the sky. It was more signified in that culture to signify this idea 
of, of, a, of a sovereign, of a king, of a ruler, someone who was sitting on his, on his throne, who is, who is powerful and strong and unassailable, and he is great. And Jesus is reminding us that we're praying to a father who is high and who is lifted up. We are not on, we're on an equal plane relationally, but never in terms of God's rule and reign and sovereignty. And the fact there, there, Jesus and God is very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. And I am that God, and guess what? That means that you are not, okay? Now, when we think about this idea of why it's important for us to get this idea that not only is God with us, but that he is also God above us, when you think about this example for a second, um, we've lived in the house that, that we've lived in up in Treadington Park for about 13 years. And when we moved into the house, we did what all helicopter parents did, and that was to get an alarm system, right? Okay. So in 13 years, we've never, we've never had a break-in. A couple of months ago, it's, it's 2 a.m., and the alarm goes off. Which it sound, it, I, mean, this sounds, I mean, this sounds like the hurricane warning siren, right? Off in our house at 2 a.m. And so everyone is immediately hurled out of bed, right? So dad is, I'm hurled out of bed. I'm, I'm disoriented. I'm half asleep. I'm groping. I'm walking into the middle of our, of, our, of our living area. I'm in the middle. I'm in my pajamas. Kids are pouring out of the room. Susan's pouring out of the room. She's reaching for the gun. Okay, everybody is looking at me. And, and, and what, are, what are their faces saying? Uh, Dad, you better do something. Okay, like right now. Now, understand it's very good that I'm there. It's very good. The children love me. My wife loves me. I am with them. But you know what? It ain't enough. Because everybody is saying, is thinking, but yeah, Dad, but you better darn well do something to protect us and help us right now, right? Which in this situation meant me figuring out that there was a low battery on our window alarm <laughs> May the fleas of a thousand camels infest the armpits of safe touch and their employees. Okay, but no, we love them. See, the desire to help, to be there, it was important, guys. Being a father is not less than that. It's not less than that. You can't help if you're not there. But I better be able to do something about it. See, when we pray our Father in heaven, what Jesus is wanting to orient us to is God not only has the desire to help, oh, and he does. He loves you. He cares for you. He fathers you. He draws you close. But amazingly, he actually has the power to do something about it. See, I know a lot of you have deep wounds from your father, and it's hard to think about your father in these dual categories because of your earthly father who was distant, passive, abusive, abandoned. I, I don't know. And all of us have different obstacles to overcome in that. My kids will have obstacles to overcome in that. But it doesn't make it any less true. Folks, we need a God who's with us. But let me tell you, we need a God that's above us, who's in control, who's great, who's mighty, who's strong, who's unassailable, 
And this is why Jesus, and we go to the second phrase here, says, Father, tell them to pray, hallowed be your name. Now, that, 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 that's fancy religious jargon. What, what, what does Jesus mean here? As we think about names, how do we, how do we name our children oftentimes? So oftentimes we'll, we'll, we'll name our children after a famous person, right? So right now in the hills of East Tennessee, there's an inordinate number of 18 to 20-year-olds running moonshine whose name happened to be what? Peyton, right? Okay, they happened to be Peyton, who quarterbacked Tennessee some 20 years ago. So maybe you're named after a famous person. More often, we name someone after a family member. You know, there's a member of the pastoral team whose given name, I kid you not, is Merlin. And I'm going to let you figure out who that is. And guess what? It's not me. And it's not Josh, and I'm pretty sure it's not Scott either. So, all right, so this gives you a head start. Now, that's not how Jews named their children, okay? Oftentimes, children were given names because they reflected a specific purpose or some part of their character or some part of their their mission. It, it, It was an incommunicable aspect of their very being. And so Jesus says, there's a name that has to be hallowed. Hallow, it just simply means to, to reveal, to display, to hold up, to set apart. Jesus is simply saying, when you pray, absolutely pray to your Father. Absolutely. But pray that his name will be hallowed. Your, that's a dangerous prayer, by the way. When, you're, when you pray that God's name will be hallowed in your life, that, that in other words, his, his, his character will be revealed, that his glory will shine forth, that his, that his character will be seen more clearly, God will introduce all sorts of, and I put this in quotes, mischief into your life to show you how awesome he truly is and how glorious he is in comparison to that thing that you've lost or that health that you've been grabbing hold of or that relationship that's become an idol in your life. Jesus says, pray for Oaks this season. This is a petition. Pray that God's name would be hallowed. Pray that his name would be made great in your life. Pray that his name would be great in your church. Pray that his name would be great in your family. Pray that God would enable your children to see his character more clearly. And, 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 here, and, this, and we have to walk in this tension. Here's what this means. We are nothing less than intimate with God. God is accessible to us. But for Oaks, we are to never be casual about God. I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. Jesus is not your co-pilot. God is not your co-pilot. God is not sitting idly by, powerless, while your life spins out of control. God is not your butler. There when you need him, when you ring the bell, but otherwise just irrelevant and an auxiliary segment of your life. God loves you too much to not be hallowed in your life. And so when we approach him, we approach him with awe in respect, and with sobriety. How do you think your life would change? How do you think my life would change 
If you begin to pray that, how would it change the way you view worship and your priorities and your preparation? How, 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 would it, how would it shape your family dinners? How would it shape what TV shows you watch or what you do in your free time? Or whether or not community group and giving and mission is going to be a priority or on your radar at all. Guys, I, I really, I pray that, that each and every one of us this season would get a fresh vision of God with us, but also God above us. See, and you can always tell when a people get that. Because there's urgency about their, li- about their lives. There, there, there's power. There's purpose, but there's also love, and there's fellowship, and there's intimacy. Do you see what I mean when I say that the thing we need most this year is a knowledge of God, a true knowledge? And getting that knowledge in the correct proportions enables us to pray. Here's the last thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God is with us, he's above us, but he's finally, he's over us. See, in the Bible, heaven is a place where God rules and where he reigns perfectly. So if you go to a certain passage in the Bible, we read one in our worship, Isaiah chapter 6 or Revelation 4 and 5, in heaven, everything works the way it should. Worship is perfect. Relationships are restored. There's a joyful submission to God in his kingship. Everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. Because we know that this world is not the way it should be. This world is full of death and decay and disease and fractured relationships and brokenness. And so it's interesting in the Gospels When Jesus came and he began to heal people and he began to to raise people from the dead and eradicate disease, what would he often say? Repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. What did he mean? He meant that that heaven is, is breaking into our brokenness. He he he's he's helping us understand that God is in the process of making things right again. That's what it means when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. We are praying, God, make this right. God, establish your reign, establish your rule in that situation. Lord, heal that disease. Lord, restore that marriage. Lord, bring that prodigal home. Lord, revive your church. Lord, um, Provide for our family and our material needs. Lord, Lord, let your kingdom come. And see, Jesus here is pointing us to something that Tim Keller calls kingdom praying. See, kingdom praying, and it's I said this in several ways, let me say it again. Prayer is nothing less than individual, but it's so much more. And see, when we are kingdom prayers, prayers, We are praying that God's rule, that God's way will have its way. We're praying, God, bring your shalom, bring your peace, bring your righteousness 
establish it. This is oftentimes we see this in the Psalms being prayed in the morning. So the psalmist comes before the Lord, and you guys know this. You wake up, and your heart is burdened, and there are so many kingdom prayers that you're praying. God, work in his heart. Lord, work in my marriage. Work in my spouse's life. Lord, draw my children back to yourself. Lord, provide that job. I'm praying your kingdom come. And we're entrusting these things to him. Then when we lay our head down at night, and we know night is notorious for anxiety and restlessness and sleeplessness as all of those burdens come into us. And this is where the passive part of praying resides. Because in the morning we are praying, God, your will, I mean, your kingdom come. And then at night we rest our head and what do we say? But your will be done. But your will be done. God, I'm, gonna, I'm going to sleep tonight because I know that you are not sleeping. I know that you are working. And I know that you are ultimately going to accomplish your purposes in the lives of your people. God, I want you to fix this thing. Oh my God, I, I so desperately want you to fix that thing. But your will be done. It'll be in your time, in your way. And it may not be in this life. But we know, God, eventually your kingdom will come in all its glory. Well, let me say a couple of things to some of you who've been praying your kingdom come for a long time. And maybe for days, months, weeks, years, decades. And you feel like, you know, I got nothing. God is silent. God does not hear me. Is God hearing me? Is this, is this doing anything? Let me encourage us with a couple of things here as we wind our time down. Number one, know this. There is no such thing as an unanswered prayer for those who know Christ Jesus. Now, God may be saying no. He may be saying wait. He may be saying Maybe, but he's always answering us through Jesus Christ. Number two, be encouraged with this. You know, you are praying, you and I, we pray for what we think is best, okay? But God actually answers the prayer that is best. Okay, Tim, Tim Keller, let me, let me restate it this way. Tim Keller says it like this. God answers the prayer that you would have prayed if you knew everything that he does. You're praying something, and, he, and your heart feels right before God, this is what I'm praying, and God's like, but if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be praying that. Let me give you the answer to the prayer that you would be praying if you were like me. And I think that's thoroughly biblical, by the way, not just because Tim Keller said it, but listen to Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know. How many times do you walk around, you come before God, you open your Bible, you pray? I, I don't know what I'm praying for. We'll talk about that in the next week or two. Be encouraged. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Spirit prays on your behalf if you're in Christ. Last thing. 
as you are wrestling with this idea that God's kingdom doesn't seem to be coming in the time or in the proportion that you think it ought to come, I want you to know this. Jesus also, let me say this carefully, wrestled and struggled in prayer before his father. When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross and he was in the garden in Gethsemane, what did he pray? Father, if it be your will, what does he say? Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. I don't want to die. I don't want to have the sins of the world heaped upon my shoulders. That was his active prayer, but what does he say? But not my will, but your will. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God said no to Jesus so that he could say yes to you and me. God said no to his own son so that you and I could also call him Father. Because that's the gospel. That's what we preach, teach, and call us to live out every moment of every day as his people. And our prayer for you, for us, this season is that you would come and see and taste that the Lord is good. And maybe for you that you would taste and see in a new way that God is with you. Or some of us need a reorientation, you know, that God is actually above us. Some of us will be encouraged and inspired to pray kingdom prayers, God over us, God do your will through us. And you know, when we come to the table each and every week, we're celebrating the fact that God's kingdom has come. Now, it's not fully here. We wish it was. It's not fully here. But his kingdom has been inaugurated. It is taking territory. It is transforming lives. And Jesus said, I will come back and celebrate this with you one day when I set up my kingdom forever. Forever.